an effort and play it like Doodle wants to. Uh, get on with the marching here. You can stand that tree just a munching clover. Bars your way and eight bars doodles. All right. You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Michael Kupperman. Michael's latest book is Tales Designed to Thrizzle, Volume 2, as well as the recent, I guess, it came out. I guess it probably came out. Th- Two years ago, three years ago, the autobiography of uh, Mark Twain that you did? I think it was two years ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, as well as Tales Designed the Thrizzle, Volume 1, which came out four years ago, which was the last time Michael was on, and a wide variety of other um, comedic activities, including work on TV Funhouse, uh, the Snake and Bacon uh, comic, and probably a whole lot other. The Crime Stoppers, comic book reading. Um, anything else? I'm forgetting. Oh, uh, there's. I I can't keep it. I can't keep myself. <laughs> How 
you seem to kind of very much don't just focus on comics for your comedy. It's very wide and ranged. Yeah, I think these days you have to pursue that strategy also. Um, I probably would have liked to be the artist, you know, sitting in the the attic, not being seen by the public and with intermediaries doing everything for me, but it just didn't work out that way. So, like, illustration and comics were always kind of your first direction for being a comedic output. Well, drawing, you know, because I'm kind of a shy person. I think that's why I didn't go into performance. Um, sometimes I wish I'd gone into writing, but, uh, you know, drawing just always had a certain magic for me. When did you start doing these performances recently? Um, well, I, I, it's been a gradual thing over the years. Bob Sikoriak does uh, comic readings quite a lot, and I started with him. Um, and when I started, I was so shy, I had actors like James Urbaniak read the dialogue. But gradually, I got a little bolder, and then finally got to the point where I felt like I could do it better than actors could. And, uh, you know, it's all about timing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing performances now for, I don't know, probably I've been doing them well for about 10 years. And uh, and then, yeah, for, for a while, uh, a year or two ago, I was uh, organizing performances and uh, mixing comics readings with uh, comedy. Uh, I co-hosted those with Kate Beaton, the Crime Stoppers uh, uh, nights. Um, and it was, it's, it was amazing, yeah. You guys had some pretty good turnouts for it. We had great turnouts. The place was packed. Uh, we had some really fun comedy acts on. Uh, and I think everyone enjoyed the, the contrast. You know, the comedians got a very different audience than they were used to. And the comics artists got to be in front of an audience of people who had come to laugh. So it was kind of magical. <laughs> Did you always kind of do it in the same spot? Or was it in, like, different comedy clubs? Or... Well, the place where it really worked was this place, Luca Lounge. Um, it was a bar on Avenue B and 13th Street, and uh, they didn't make us charge admission, mm-hmm. which was amazing. Um, because, you know, that gave things a really relaxed air. And it, it kind of was like a moldering basement. Uh, the, <laughs> roof would, the roof would leak when, uh, when it rained. And um, it was just the perfect environment. We did it a couple of times at other places, but, it you know... Performance is a very delicate thing in that relationship with the audience. Recently, you'd also done some stuff with uh, Kristen Schaal, who was in the Snake and Bacon's cartoon. Um, was yeah. that kind of more the same thing, or was that something different? Oh, well, let me see. Actually, the first time I met Kristen, it was when she was in a movie that I was doing with uh, Julie Klausner. Mm-hmm. You can see it on YouTube. It's called, uh, I think, New York Tourism. It's got some name like that, New York Tourism, uh, Welcome to New York. It was a parody of the, uh, the films you see when you're in hotels or, or in Hawaii. They're just on TV saying welcome to Hawaii and describing the, uh, the wonders that you can see. Um, and she was in that in a very short scene. And, um, and then the next, thing I, the next time I saw her, it was for Snake and Bacon's Cartoon Cabaret. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there were a couple of things since then. We, uh, I, I worked on her book, which was called The Sexy Book of Sexy Sex, uh, written by her and Rich Blomquist, who met at uh, Snake and Bacon. And um, then, because I had been in that book and in the uh, other sex book that came out at the same time, um, I'm trying to remember, what's that called? 
Ugh, it, so many a, sex books. Yeah. Um, our, our junk ourselves, is that it? Uh, anyway, I'd done things in both those books, so they invited me to come and do a stage performance in uh, uh, San Francisco with uh, a couple of the writers and her. Oh. And um, I've been on stage with her a couple of times. She's just an amazing presence mm-hmm. and one of the nicest people I've ever met. So in that performance, what kind of stuff were you doing? I think I did a... In that one, I did a cartoon reading of some of my dirty stuff, and then we did a kind of brief dance number. <laughs> I guess you'd have to get over the stage fright to start uh, doing dance numbers. That That's pretty much... Uh, that'll push you. Well, I find being on stage fairly terrifying, but I've, I kind of um, have plunged into the deep end whenever I've had the chance, because I feel the best way to get over it is to just confront it repeatedly. And I've actually, I've done the monologues at UCB ASCAT, uh, you know, where you have to improvise monologues on stage uh, from audience shouted out suggestions. And uh, some other stuff like that, where it is just really you on stage and uh, there's no script and it's, uh, it can be really frightening.
the outside, round the outside. Uh-huh. Two buffalo boys go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Uh-huh. Three buffalo boys go around the outside. Buffalo boys go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Four buffalo boys go around the outside and don't see through your partners. I'm curious about yourself um, because your your take on humor is pretty unique, and I'm wondering what influenced you as a humorist. Like, what did you kind of find funny and tap into, or kind of pushed you in that direction? Well, it was always you know the humor of irony and deconstruction, which is where I see myself as coming from. Um, early on, it was this English show, The Goodies, and then Monty Python, and then SCTV was huge. Uh, huge for me. I, I'm still kind of amazed by SCTV and, and just in wonderment of it, uh, as I was when I first saw it, where I, when I was very young. Um, I, when we were in Toronto, actually, uh, we were both in Toronto, you and I, for the Toronto Comics and Arts Festival, and I just felt the ghost of SCTV everywhere I went. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was a huge one for me. That's that's about as Canadian as you get. I was trying to explain SCTV to uh, some European cartoonists because they didn't really know much about Canada. And like, you know, like Bob and Doug McKenzie, like, nope. They kind of looked at me blankly. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I've tried to show it to some of my English friends. I don't know if it ever has really connected. I mean, humor can be so idiosyncratic and pe peculiar in that way. And... SCTV has such a strange rhythm to it. I think part of it is that they had to fill time, you know, at, at an insane uh, level compared to anything anyone has to come up with now. They had, uh, what, 90-minute shows every week? And that was back when uh, the commercials hadn't been deregulated yet. So, you know, they had to fill, I think, 54 minutes out of an hour. Um, so, you know... That'd be uh, well. Whatever. I'm too tired to do the math. It's a but, lot. You know, they had they had to fill <laughs> a lot of airtime in very short time, and with obviously no budget. And um, it's it's kind of amazing. And you know, so you also forgive the 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 points where it's it feels very uh, slow. Yeah. But uh, but then it's been that way with some English humor. Some of it I've I've heard for the first time and just thought this is awful. You know, and then I went back a little later and, uh, you know, grew to love it. Mm -hmm. Humor can be like that. kind of takes a couple of times sometimes. Yeah. Lee and Herring were like that for me. I listened to some of their early work and just thought, ugh. And then later I went back and it became my favorite thing, you know, in the world. One of the things I was thinking about with your work, and I think, I remember when I was going through this stuff, I don't know which book it was, um, made a reference to data, and, and I really feel like there's kind of a surrealness to your work. And I'm wondering like, if that, that is something for you, because you talk about like the deconstruction 
a second ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of about having the ball bounce in a different direction because we all know, you know, the rhythm of jokes and the rhythm of narrative, and there's certain expectations that you have. And um, someone I was talking to recently just compared it to, uh, actually it was Jaime Hernandez, compared it to uh, Lucy moving the ball in Peanuts, uh, where, you know, you think you're going to kick that ball, I'm going to move it, was how he put it. Yeah. Um, you know, where where I'm I'm just setting up the expectations as everyone's familiar with and then just switching it. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about, like, there seems to be, like, a lot of, uh, just the way you kind of pack everything into an issue of Thrizzle, it's like a lot of non-sequiturs. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, to me, there has to be a certain logic and, uh, relationship between the parts. It, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't feel like I can just, you know, it's not so simple as just, uh, you know, choosing a complete tangent. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's like, I, I should be careful because, like, I'm not trying to say, like, <laughs> it's, uh, like, kind of like an ADD type thing, but it's all, it's just, like, kind of the opposite of that, where it's kind of focused in putting in things. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and, and when, I mean, rec- in some of them, in Snake and Bacon, I did this, and recently, again, with that Quincy story, where it's, you know, and this is very SCTV, too. They did this, where it was kind of dreamlike relationship of, of scenes, and they would there would be connections formed between them, you know, and things would return that you'd forgotten. Um, I, I, I like to do that a lot. You seem to like to have, like, a pool of characters to play with. Well, characters are archetypes, yeah. And I'm wondering, um, like, when you're using a character, like, probably you're one of your most used characters, like Twain and yeah. Einstein, um, and just, like, how you take them so far away from who they are, and it's really interesting how you kind of play and create these new characters just with the visual symbols of who they are. Yes, yes. And with Twain, it's funny because, you know, um, there's a whole Twain industry, kind of, in this country, and, uh, so it was kind of um, impossible to resist to play with that. Mm-hmm. So I decided I had to dress up as Twain and do some, you know, Twain acting. <laughs> so, um, you know, I kind of entered into that. But then I was getting invitations from, you know, places that were, you know, where... Well, I did the Twain House in Hartford, which was actually amazing. The Twain House in Hartford is, uh, is pretty fantastic. Um, but I was getting feelers from, you know, Hannibal and other places that he lived. And uh, it was it was... It was interesting to to fantasize about how much I could enter into that. Although ultimately, I don't think I really wanted to enter into that very much, because of course my work is not really about Twain at all. Yeah. Uh, it's just about a idea of which the idea of Twain is part of it. It's like the saying, like in a not a saying, but the idea, like when you do an impersonation, of someone you're not doing their voice, you're doing what you think their voice is. Yeah, completely. And again, again uh, you know, like a lot of these, <laughs> I hate to keep talking about SCTV. People will think I'm just an SCTV <laughs> tribute. Uh, well, you are talking to a Canadian, so it's it's safe space. But uh, Dave Thomas's uh, uh, Walter Cronkite, for instance, was very like that because it was this bizarre. You know, it was it was actually a lot like my Twain character. This sort of uh, libidinous, I think, uh, you know, loose-mouthed, uh, roguish character. Who, who tended to bully, as I remember, uh, oh, God, who was Rick Moranis playing? Um, 
It's gone. I forget the name. Another famous newsman. Chet Chet Hundley. Was that it? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, was Twain uh, kind of a person you'd been interested in for quite a while, or is this kind of more recent? Um, he's been a character for uh, a while for me. And I, I mean, it's sort of... Oh, so I grew up in Connecticut mostly, and it's kind of a Connecticut thing. He, he, uh, the most fertile years of his career were spent outside of Hartford, and uh, he's he's sort of a local character. And uh, so you see their commercials with Twain impersonators, you know, and uh, musicals about Twain and Twain-themed playgrounds in the shopping malls, you know. So it was already around, and there was a. For instance, there was a commercial I remember from when I was young that went, uh, it was a Twain impersonator, and he was saying, Folks, I've been getting to know some of these Eastern Connecticut Buick dealers, and they're a right nice bunch of fellas. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so it was very present, yeah. I mean, he's one of those characters who's, uh, you know, become such a idea to people that, that that's part of it, too. You know, uh, like friend, like Ben Franklin, you know, would be another one. And Einstein, you know, where they've become this kind of character, you know, that turns up in different venues. And Quincy's a neat one because it's just like, I don't think anyone, I shouldn't say I don't think anyone, but it's, he's, you can kind of make him up as you want because it's so removed from most people's kind of watching yeah, I don't. I don't even think I watched that much Quincy. That's the odd thing. I had yeah. to go back and watch some when I was planning that story, <laughs> and I was like, "God, this is so boring." Um, <laughs> I mean, Jack Klugman's always good, but it wasn't a very tight program, you know. Um, it's really mysterious to me, actually, why I've used uh, why there's so many many Quincy references in my work, uh, you know, leading up to that big eighteen-page adventure recently which is one of your longer comic strips i think isn't it absolutely yeah i guess this kind of thing though is like you like to pick things um and just really i don't want to say boil it down but really take the idea and the conceit of it yeah take it to its logical uh conclusion you might say or illogical conclusion right <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the things I was reading the work and, um, sometimes the, the, the art and the story kind of are doing, or art and the words are doing different things. I wonder about that for yourself when you're putting together some of the stuff and, um, do you, do they come in together as a writer or how do you approach? It depends. I'm. I'd have to say more often it's the words, at least lately. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they come in together. Um, you know, there. Sometimes you see, I, I see things uh, visually because just the way that the jokes only make sense when worded a certain way. If you change the wording on some of my jokes, they just, you know, are like what? Uh, if you change, if the drawing is changed, I mean, uh, I like a certain awkwardness at times, and to have uh, that, you know stiffness to me is really funny so sometimes that's part of it and i think of it all at once there is one phrase that stuck out to me uh, churchill said mauling walrus 
Jablonski. <laughs> I was what? like, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's an odd one. It's just, I don't know, I'm curious about, like, the just kind of throwing words together and just, like, having that be something in itself. Yeah, that, that one does sound pretty haphazard. Or the ham banana roll. Ham banana rolls. Well, that's a real thing. Is it? No, I didn't make that up. Where did they make Where is this from? I, I found that recipe in the 1940s magazine. Wow. Yeah. Is it any good? Oh, I haven't tried it. Oh. And, you know, my wife's vegetarian, so... I, I can't see it happening. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe there should be a restaurant called Retros where they make all these weird old dishes. You could probably have a highly successful uh, restaurant in some corner of Brooklyn doing that. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good <laughs> idea. If only it didn't cost so much to start up. Um, speaking of the magazines, um, I was thinking about you know, just like how, like, the inspiration of magazines, and I didn't realize I was looking at your website, and you've been collecting these odd men's magazines, and I'm yeah. wondering about, like, how you started collecting that. Well, it's, I'm not really collecting them. It would be way too expensive for me to actually collect them, because they're, uh, they're hard to find, and, and generally a little pricey. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you see them at the Park, Park Slope flea market or whatever, fairly cheap, and I, I grab a few. But uh, the majority of what I've got comes from one hall where uh, it was this old magazine store in Midtown Manhattan, uh, the very last one, I think, in New York. And they, uh, they had this boxes of magazines one time that had come from this guy's estate where he had been taking them apart for years. He'd been buying men's magazines all through the 50s and 60s, taking them apart, and then kind of recombining the contents to make a new magazine and then crossing out what wasn't in his version on the cover and then stamping his name on it. Very odd. But uh, there, so there were these, you know, defaced, oddly shaped magazines. And because they, you know, this limited their resale value, I got them very cheap. Mm -hmm. and then I took them apart again and put the pages in binders so I could have them for reference. But it's just this amazing, surreal hodgepodge of stuff. You know, and yes, some of it I've been putting up on my Tumblr. How much of it were you able to like reconstruct full magazines, or was a lot thrown away? Oh no, yeah, no, I wouldn't have even tried. I I think he, you know, was discarding some of it. Um, uh, there were a lot of intact pictorials of you know pinups, which I haven't been putting online. I just don't, I don't know if that would arouse uh, <laughs> what that might arouse in people. I've been putting up mainly the uh, the stories and the the odd gossip stories and stuff. There's a lot of stories about wife swapping and sin taking place here and there. What was uh, the the one that was like the capital, the homosexual capital of America? Yeah, I can't remember what town they were talking about. Was it San Francisco or was it New York? I have no. I just saw the cover. Yeah, there are a lot about Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village was the uh, hot spot of sin. But there are stories about almost every location you can think about. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating. But, you know, no, I couldn't, I couldn't have reconstructed any magazines. Where I had old articles, I generally kept them together. But then there were just, like, page fragments and stuff, a lot of page fragments. Like you would just keep one article from that page and cut out the rest? 
No, like he was constructing an article from a magazine and then putting it with an article from a different magazine, but, you know, anything that's on the back page of the first page of that article or on the back page of the last page of the next article, you know, just these fragments and stuff. So it's kind of uh, really surreal and fascinating. Weird. Did the store have any info on this guy that sold him the stuff, or was it like... it was just something like he lives in Connecticut and he did this. You know what? I don't remember any other details besides that. Yeah, I should ask Sam Henderson if he remembers anything. He was actually along with me, I think, and and bought a few, although not as many as me. I bought like three hundred and fifty or something. Oh. Uh, yeah, I bought these boxes home, and then I had to take them apart because it was like these ridiculous piles of these crumbling old, you know, misshaped yeah. magazines. I couldn't keep them the way they were, but. Uh, yeah, so they've given me a lot of material, too. I'm actually, I've just been working on a comics e- comic essay that is going to be the preface to a book of them uh, that's coming out from a publisher in England. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Uh, I was curious about that. Um, so it's going to be, like, a, from your collection of these various yeah. torn-apart magazines. Yeah. To, to give, uh, you know, to give the flavor of that. Mm-hmm. Were there any particular favorite um, articles that really stand out to you of just high ridiculousness? Uh, there's so many. I don't know if I could even uh, point to one in particular. But, uh, you know, it's just it just ranges all over the place, too. There are ones that have that complete... You feel like you're in a James Elroy novel looking at them because they're that world he talks about and people he talks about. And, and, you know, written in that Hush Hush style. I mean, Hush Hush was one of the magazines this guy collected. <laughs> um, so just a lot of weirdness. And then occasional, you know, like there was a whole uh, first draft version of a Richard Stark Parker novel, for example. That was kind of cool. Oh, neat. Yeah. I guess you can't put that in the book. Well, no. <laughs> I can enjoy it. Um, now, Thrizzle... Is one of the few kind of alt pamphlet comics still going. Yeah. Um, are you still attracted to, to putting it out in that format? That... I am, although it gets harder all the time, to be honest. Um, I'm also very attracted, though, to digital formats and to putting my work out digitally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy putting out a comic book, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, the, the digital is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah, I think you were one of the earlier books that Fantagraphics had on uh, Comixology. Was I was the second one, I think, after Love and Rockets. Nice. Um, and you finding more folks, or you know if more people are getting it through that, or if that's been advantageous? I do not, actually. I have no idea. I just know that it's the direction to go in. Um, you know, it's 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 frustrating because uh, I don't think there are the easy platforms yet that there will be in the future if, you know, simple simple common sense is followed. Uh, I'm just waiting. I think there should be a time soon when any cartoonist can format their work uh, across several platforms and release it themselves. I know a lot of folks, um, like younger cartoonists, what they do is they'll do a PDF and then they'll just post it on Gumroad, uh, huh. this website, and just sell the PDF of it. Yeah, that's that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also was thinking of uh, looking at iBooks. Yeah. Doing one through them. Um, 
but I mean, you know what I mean. There's no like one simple format that can that can transfer across every platform easily. No. PDF, I guess, is as, as close as you can get right now. Yeah. But you know, I was just making these uh, short movies for Thing X, which is now Adult Swim, um, and just the feeling I had because I was trying to just see what I could do with the basic tools on my computer, and what I kept feeling was there they really put constraints on just trying to stop people from being able to create and release their own material because they don't want people doing that. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it, it, it depends on the venue. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, basically the big corporations, and I include Apple in this, don't want yeah. people to be, you know, just completely uh, empowered creatively. Well, and the thing with uh, that, that I always have trouble with, with things like Apple is just how much because if you're using the iBook store they take a huge cut yeah of of the sales um and like when you compare it to like book sales where yeah they take a huge cut because they're buying the book right you know and they have that stock and yeah. but when you're selling on consignment like it is through digitally it's um you don't have that. They don't have that same financial risk. Yeah. It's a yeah. Hard, it's a hard one for me, because like I, I'd like to see more kind of opportunities for creators to make money with less. Well, I think hands getting in there has to happen. Yeah. Because uh, nothing else is going to make sense. Mm -hmm. So you know we're just at a very primitive stage right now, where you know the things that should logically be happening in the world of the internet and computers are being prevented to some degree by greedy corporations. Do you get your own entertainment digitally? Um, some of it, yeah. Uh, you know, I watch stuff online or um, I'll watch, you know, I'll watch things on uh, TV network websites, which is another example where you see that they don't really know what they're doing mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the internet. Um, the low quality kind of blocky video well and there's just something there's something about their relationship to advertising that feels like they're saying you know th that it's almost like a fetish like when a child I, I'm a father when a small child has a fetish and they're just like you have to do this thing and with now you know with the TV networks it's you have to watch these ads I don't care if you don't like them I don't care if they're not working, you have to watch them. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of that feeling in online stuff where you get the same ad over and over and over and there's no way it's going to be effective more than three times in a row. I mean, who, <laughs> who would think that? You know, but it's just like, you know, yeah. it's like they want to rape you just a little bit. You know, <laughs> they can't do it to the massive scale they do it on cable since deregulation, I mean, I think... Cable TV is just this amazing example of what should be an amazing conduit for content to people has become an open sewer. Yeah. Because of unfettered greed. Mm -hmm. But I know we're both... Are you watching the Big Brother UK, the new one? I am. The yeah. Secrets and Lies. It is kind of... Uh, I don't know. It's it's keeping me... Uh, keeping my interest so far. It's... Uh, this is going to be something that very few listeners probably interested but I, I'm very happy with uh, it's uh, a lot more interesting than the last several seasons well some say. of the characters I love when these people have kind of built in inversions like the uh, the, bo the, the 
guy who seems like a shy little boy. You know, he really reminds me of, there's a four-year-old boy in my, na in my uh, building who he reminds me of very much, um, who also claims to be the biggest sugar daddy in London. I'm not sure if he's actually claiming to be a pimp or, or just someone who makes financial gifts to women. Yeah, that's, he's just a guy that pays women to be, or gives women gifts to be uh, companions. Oh, and you know, and I look at his shy, sad little face and, and just think, who are you trying to fool? You just want to give him a hug. Yeah, I mean, he seems like such a timid little fellow. I just, I, I have this horrible attraction to the British reality shows that none of my friends can seem to understand, but... Yeah, you know, what can it's, you do? It's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's, but my I wife will watch some reality shows with me, but not others. I, there was a one, actually, we, uh, we watched a couple of episodes, and I think she's had enough. But I'm, I'm still fascinated. It's called The Intern. Have you seen this? No. It's a, with a woman called Hilary DeVay, uh, I think that's right, who's uh, from The Apprentice. I mean, not sorry, not The Apprentice, uh, Dragon's Den, which I haven't really seen much of. But she's a very eccentric older woman. Uh, she's, you know, kind of chain-smoking grandma type wearing a wig. And the idea of the program is that she gives kids uh, help in developing their skills uh, and getting internships. Like, in every program these kids are competing to get uh, an internship with a different or they're competing to get a job excuse me yeah in a different industry and the first one is the hotel industry but in every show her methods are the same she hires actors to put on skits and then uh, you know sees how they react to it and uh, in the hotel one for instance it was just hilarious kind of vaudeville stuff like there was a you know cheating husband with a wife who marched in and demanded that the, you know, uh, the the candidate let her know whether there had been a woman in the room a few minutes before, as there had been. And it was just directly from the John Cleese episode of Cheers. It was absolutely hysterical. I have not seen this. I'm going to have to look at it. I, yeah. uh, I got really hooked on this uh, Gordon Ramsay hotel thing where they there's, like, all these different British reality TV... Kind but of that's it's is wait did he is he doing an American version of that or I've seen the hotel one no no what it was he it was I know the hotel when you're thinking it was like this week long thing it only around oh the, week. the one where they all work at a hotel yeah and so it's mm -hmm. all these like reality TV folks with different departments and there I haven't seen that yeah it was it was weird and it's just it kind of um the 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 big takeaway I got from it was just like kind of the poverty in Britain and just like how it is hard for kids to get work and just kind of... Uh, been like, going downhill there so fast. Yeah. But then again, it's been going downhill here too, so... Uh, it's going to happen here. I'm, yeah. I'm knocking on wood. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough market right now in, in Vancouver. Yeah, but, things, are, you know. things are tough all over. Oh, we got depressing. <laughs> well, you know, it's reality. Yeah. Whatever. What do you have uh, that you're working on now? You mentioned the uh, magazine book. Is there anything? Uh, yeah, it's a jumble of projects. Right now I'm working on a, a poster for a French rock festival. Then I'm doing... Uh, I'm working on a comic story for uh, the Big Gay Ice Cream Truck book with Sarah Thayer. Um, I think I'm going to be uh, doing some character work, some animation for... Uh, uh, Nick Lowe video maybe later. I don't know if I should be even saying all this. Um, I, uh, what 
those. Oh, I, I made these films, and they should be up on adultswim.com pretty soon. Although I'm also thinking of going back and editing some of them because they're so rough. Um, what are the films? They're they're Twain. They're me oh, okay. as Twain, and then um, I introduce bits. Uh, the first one was the really intense one because I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I decided to try to do animation just using the native tools on my computer and without learning any animation programs. So I just made animation from sequenced images, which I fed through QuickTime Pro uh, and then put into iMovie. And that was pretty crazy. I mean, once I figured out how to do it in a kind of low-impact way, it wasn't so bad. But with the Twain, this first Twain cartoon, I got really ambitious. And there are lots of shots of him on rafts made of garbage, you know, shooting down rivers and stuff. <laughs> and uh, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sequenced images. So I'm interested to see how people react to that. Ha ha! James Bond, the killer. So you've been working with Fanographics for uh, quite some time um, with your books, all three coming up from that. Uh, tell me about your relationship working with them. Well, it's it's mostly been great. And uh, uh, Kim Thompson, who just uh, just got the news that he passed away, uh, was a really good editor. Uh, he edited my stuff very intently. Um, which I was always very grateful for, and uh, really going to miss him. I'm absolutely shocked to hear that he's gone. What kind of feedback would he give you on your work? It was 
He never really uh, commented on the humor. It was always, uh, you know, the grammar and uh, <laughs> if there were spelling mistakes and so on. But he really, you know, combed over it very carefully. I know one of the, the Fanographic staffers were telling me that he had done a lot of the work, even just putting your book together um, and stuff. So he was pretty hands-on with your comics, it sounds like. Yeah, no, Kim was very serious about what he did. And... Uh, when I visited Seattle a few years back, he and his uh, his wife Diane took me out for dinner, and uh, really were great to me. Um, he, he was a terrific guy, and I, I think it's a terrible loss. Um, are you doing any more readings? I know the Crime Stoppers. I don't think that's happening anymore since Kate moved. No, uh, Kate Beaton went to, back to Canada. We lost the venue. It turned out the guy hadn't been paying rent. Um, and so, frankly, I haven't had the energy or kind of the drive to organize them lately. It all sort of just fell to, I have to organize them or else they're not happening. And, uh, I, I'm so busy and, uh, you know, the right opportunity just hasn't presented itself. So as you're kind of taking on all these other tasks, um, we still managed to get some, some drawing time in. Uh, I try. It's not It's not the same as when I was younger, to be honest, where I just wanted to be drawing all the time. Now I just am thankful to get a break, frankly. Is that kind of the reason, the kind of outcome um, of why like a lot of like one-page strips, really short gags, is just kind of a reflection of how much time you're able to put into it so you can just have that that you're able to focus on? Well, no, because I've I've worked on myself to to be able to work faster. I feel like um, with some of like the Twain book, for example, the comics and that. I feel like if the drawing is good enough to carry the joke, then it's good enough. So um, I can work on a, a lot a lot of pages in that fashion, for example, very fast. No, it's just about getting in and out, you know, with mm -hmm. with a quick joke. But I am feeling it's it's about time for me to do a graphic novel. So we'll see. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll be happy to, or excited to see whatever it is you decide to do with that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I was getting the feeling this is still pretty conceptual. Well, I have several possibilities, but uh, I have to, I have to uh, choose one and get uh, involved in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, a reminder, folks. I've been talking with uh, Michael Kupperman. Uh, Michael's latest book is Tales Designed to Thrizzle, Volume 2. You can also get Volume 1 while you're at it if you haven't read that. And what's the proper title of the Mark Twain book? Uh, Mark Twain's Autobiography, 1910-2010. There we go. Um, to coincide <laughs> with the release of his actual autobiography in 2010. Yes, and I'll, I'll probably be doing a expanded digital version sometime in the near future. Oh, okay. There we go. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Robert. And I hope you have a, uh, a pleasant evening.
I feel so